I'll be reading from Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Acts 9, 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground and thought, and, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And I'll pray. God, I just again thank you for what you have recorded for us, and not only of what you've done in the past, but, but the ministry it is to us today, to know that you are the same, unchanging, and that the God who who so turned around men like Saul in the past, you are, you are turning people around, saving them today. And we thank you, God, that you are alive and active in this world. And I pray that as we look at your word this morning again, that our hearts would be strengthened in our faith in Christ and that you would be free to work in us of your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of, of miracles that God does, and they have not ceased. He is still doing the miraculous today. Um, we witnessed another one as a family this week where we had another grandson born. And every child is a miracle. They truly are. Work of God, gift from God. But there are, there's a miracle of physical birth. There's miracles of preserving life. There are miracles of, of providing, um, 
and, and God is still doing these things. We know throughout the Old Testament, we saw God provide for people, manna in the wilderness, water from a rock. We saw God protecting people, Daniel in the lion's den, his friends in the fiery furnace. But God is still doing much today, really every day, to provide for us and to protect us. We take it for granted. We don't see it as a miracle. But God's provision and God's protection are the work of God, and they are miracles. I've been reading a, a book that was given to me. I've made reference to it already um, about a, a chaplain who was attached to the um, 1st Battalion of the 5th Marine um, Regiment in the invasion of Iraq. And, um, and he was, was there on the scene when we took over Baghdad and occupied the palace of Saddam Hussein. And he records miracle after miracle that happened um, in that battle, amazing things. I won't read them all, but um, it, it just, you have to believe there's a God. And just, you know, a dozen or more miracles he listed in that chapter. A lot of them had to do with rocket-propelled grenades, and, which is a missile and for all practical purposes. And these soldiers saying how they were ambushed, they just, they rode in, it was through the city, through the um, neighborhoods, and they were trying to make their way to the to the palace, and, and um, in the confusion of the night, and they, uh, everybody um, took a wrong turn, and so now they're scattered all over the city, going in every which direction instead of marching straight toward the palace, and they're being ambushed from every side, and, um, and these soldiers said there were more muzzle blasts coming out of windows and alleyways than they could possibly even be counted, and yet not a single man who was standing on a vehicle f- fully exposed with his machine gun, not a single one was killed. It's a miracle. And then these rocket, rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs, soldier after soldier said we were, they were coming right at us. And then at the last second, they would dip down and skip off the ground like a rock and go underneath our vehicles, and nobody would be touched. One guy said the, the thing was right on me, dead center. It was going to hit me. I didn't even have time to close my eyes. And it just went straight up into the air at the last second and hit a tree that was above me. Another guy actually got hit straight on the head by a rocket-pelled grenade. And it should have killed everybody in his Humvee. And it should have killed him. Bounced off his helmet. Took a big chunk out of the Kevlar. Never exploded. And just on and on. Another guy knew he'd been shot in the head and, the, and knocked him unconscious. And when he came to, couldn't believe that he was still alive, looked at his helmet and the bullet had gone all the way through the side of his helmet and then skirted up top over his head, but still inside the helmet, and lodged on the other side of the helmet. And he had it there to look at. And then, and then another rocket-propelled grenade went into the Humvee, exploded inside the Humvee, blew the windshield out. All the vehicles behind started reporting casualties. We have casualties. We have casualties. Send doctors. And not a single man on the inside was touched. The fire was inside with them. They weren't burned. They weren't singed. There was no shrapnel. All four men lived through that with not a scratch on them. Miracle after miracle. It's amazing. But there is one miracle that's greater than all. Salvation. And I'm thankful for things like that. New birth. Seeing God miraculously protect people provide for people, it it encourages our faith. But there is nothing as miraculous 
as a person coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And of all the people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul's was one of the most sensational. Not any more miraculous, but certainly more sensational. We had testimonies not long ago, and everybody wants to have a sensational testimony, um, but everybody has a miraculous testimony. We can't all even remember when we were saved. Many people can't. I, I took comfort in that, and not that I remember my day of salvation, but I know many people don't, and, and I was reading somebody one time, and, and, and the guy said, you know, some, most, many salvations are like a sunrise. You, just, you can just see it. You can just see it before your eyes. It's dark, and then it's light. He goes, but some salvations are like a sunrise on a cloudy day. I remember when I was in high school, grew up, you know, in Corpus Christi, and, and, but I'd never been to the beach for a sunrise. And so I got in my head one time, I'm just going to drive out to the beach and watch the sunrise. Well, I was disappointed. I never saw the sunrise because it was such a hazy day. All of a sudden it's hot, you know, I'm getting a tan, but I never saw the sunrise. And this guy said, that's how many people are saved. They just move from darkness to light, but they can't tell you when it happened. The sun is shining, but you don't know when it happened. And I appreciated that. Saul was not one of those. Saul was a guy who did a complete 180. He was a man who was hostile to the faith, hated the name of Jesus, and was doing everything he could to stomp out this new movement, this cultish movement he would have viewed it as. He called it the way. It was called a sect. And he absolutely hated it. But I say that every miracle is, every conversion is a miracle because every person moves from unbelief to belief, from being an enemy of God to being a child of God, from being hostile in our hearts to having the love of God shed abroad in us, from being alienated toward God to being one with God. That has happened in every single person who has placed their faith in Christ, though some are more spectacular than others. Saul not only did a complete stop, he did a 180. When I was a kid, my dad used to tell us, um, don't ride your bikes in the street. And I guess because there had been some kids hit or something, and we grew up in the suburbs, and everybody rode their bikes in the street, and so I'd, I wasn't too excited when he said, don't ride your bike in the street. But I was an obedient child. So I said, okay, can't ride my bike on the street, all right, because it's safer. The whole thing, it is safer to ride your bike on the sidewalk. That's why sidewalks are there. So I had my, my bike, and I had my head down riding as fast as I could down the sidewalk. And I had a car wreck. Who has a car wreck on a sidewalk? I had a car wreck on a sidewalk. Some car was decided it was going the wrong direction, so it pulled into a driveway in order to back out and go the other direction. And that car never looked down the sidewalks to see if there was a kid coming on a bicycle. And I had my head down going as fast as I could. And all of a sudden, dead stop. And I am thrown up onto the hood of that car, and, and the man was mad because I've just plowed into his car. And I'm thinking, you're mad. You just about killed me. <laughs> he goes, look where you're going. I'm going, I'm on a sidewalk. My dad told me it's safe. It's not safe on a sidewalk necessarily. You can still have a car wreck on your bicycle on a sidewalk, I found out. That was a sudden stop. Saul's conversion was much more than that. 
His was like being on a, on a racing, charging horse and jumping off of it onto a horse going the other direction. I don't know how he survived that. I mean, it, it, this man, I mean, it, nobody would have believed that this guy would come to faith in Christ. And not only come to faith, but be the biggest advocate for faith than anyone ever met. This is not a man that you would expect to be saved. Nobody expected it. But I believe there were probably a lot of people praying for it, and they just didn't believe it. This man's conversion experience is mentioned six times in the Bible. I didn't even know it was mentioned that many times. Acts 9, 22, 26, 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians chapter 1, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. And Philippians chapter 3, seven times in the Bible it's mentioned. And so he, this, this is a big deal. Radical. In the Old Testament, Manasseh, the worst king that ever lived, comes to repentance and recognizes his sin and that God is the true God. It seems that we'll see Manasseh in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, an evil man, also seems to come to true, genuine faith and makes profession of that. I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But Saul topped them all. Amazing. When you go through, and I won't take the time to do it this morning, but when you go through and read all the different accounts of his conversion, this is how he is described. Some of these he's describing himself. He was in hearty agreement with the murder of Stephen. He was ravaging the church. He was dragging men and women off to prison. He was breathing threats of murder. He was arresting and imprisoning people. He was persecuting them unto death. He was binding and putting into prison to be punished. He was beating them. When they were being put to death, he was casting his vote against them. He tried to make them blaspheme the name of God. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he sums it all up and says, I was a blasphemer a persecutor, a violent aggressor. But I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then he says, I am foremost among all sinners. Paul never got over what God did in his life. Utterly transformed man. I am foremost among all sinners. Saved by the grace of God. And we're thankful for it. I want to just look at, at some of the things here that are highlighted for us in this chapter in Acts and relate to today, our own lives. He was breathing threats and murder. And by the way, all the things I just read to you that were true of Paul, it never says that Paul murdered anyone. To be sure, many of the people that were arrested by Paul died. But not at the hands of Paul, from what I can tell. We often say that he was a murderer. He was responsible for the murder of Christians. But I don't see any of the six or seven references to Paul's conversion that ever say that he personally murdered anyone. He was a violent aggressor. He was responsible for people's deaths. 
He didn't personally kill them, the best I can see. He had gone to the high priest and asked for permission for letters of authority to go to Damascus and arrest anybody who could find that was a Christian. Verse 3, it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, no warning whatsoever. God's had his eye on this man, and I believe many people have been praying for his salvation. All the men with Paul saw the light and heard the voice, but they did not understand the voice, only Paul. It raises the question, why didn't God speak in such a way that all the men would understand and all the men would come to faith? We aren't told. But clearly, God is singling this man out. And I believe it feels that way every time a person hears the voice of God. You can be in a room like this, but when God speaks to you, you'd swear you're the only person in the room that God's talking to. And I know that God got the attention of all these men, and we don't know the rest of the story. Maybe they all got saved. We just don't know. But what God wants us to know is he's singling out Paul, and he singles out every person for salvation. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? It's not what he says, is it? I think this is one of the most significant statements in Scripture. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you place your faith in Christ and are born again from above, you not only become a God, but you become absolutely one with God. You're as one with God as Jesus is with the Father. John 17 says, Father, make them one with us even as I am one with you. That's one. Your identity is no longer in yourself. It is no longer in an association with other people. Your primary identity is that you are one with Jesus Christ. So much so that whenever anybody does anything to you, they're doing it to Jesus. I take comfort in that. So I don't have to defend myself, neither do you. I don't have to worry about what may or may not happen. Because whatever happens to me happens to Jesus. And I think Jesus is big enough to defend himself and take care of himself. Our identity is, in, in, is absolutely inseparable to who Jesus Christ is. Saul, you're persecuting me. Now that got his attention. He didn't know who the me was, but he thought this is a big thing because somebody is talking to me from heaven. And so... It's got to be God. And then he finds out that God who's talking to him from heaven is Jesus. And now he knows he's in big trouble. Everything he's been believing, preaching, teaching is absolutely wrong. That's humbling. Arise and enter the city and it shall be told you what you must do. You're taking orders now. You're not giving them. Utterly humbled. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. 
He was in charge, dynamic. And this guy, he was, he was extreme in everything. Not only was he extreme in his hatred for the church and in his persecution of the church, he was extremely zealous in his desire to know the law, walk by the law, preach the law, and, he, and, and if anybody in his age group, Paul topped them all. I know a guy that went to the um, Air Force Academy and ended up, after his first year there as a cadet, was the highest cadet they'd ever had in the history of the academy in both, phys- in both physical um, ability and intellectual ability, off the charts. He beat everybody in the entire history of the cadet, both physically and mentally. That's Paul. He was off the charts in comparison to everybody else. And now he's been knocked to the ground by this light. He's blind, and he's being led by the hand like a child. And then it says, verse 9, that he spent three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. That's typically in the Bible a picture of of humility and of of, um, brokenness of repentance when you choose not to eat or drink for several days at a time. And I believe that Saul is expressing here his, the conviction that's taking place in him. I have been 100% wrong in everything I've thought, said, and done. This is a man who's undone. Only God can bring you to that point. He's got nothing to say. He is just man who is helpless waiting for what God will do next. And God brings a man named Ananias. And God says to Ananias, I've already had this guy Saul have a vision saying that you're coming. So saying no is not an option. (laughs) Thanks, Lord. I've, I've volunteered you. So I'm not really asking you here, Ananias. I've already told Saul you're going. And it's the last thing Ananias wanted to do because he's heard the reports. And maybe Ananias was even on the list that Paul had of who he was going to arrest and and imprison. But he went. And to this day, if you go to Damascus, there is a street called Straight. And somewhere on that street was a guy named Judas who was probably not a Christian. And he had Saul in his house. And he's here, is it, where, where's the rest of the story? What happened to this guy, Judas? Does he become, we don't know. We don't know what happens to him. But Saul would not have been led to a Christian's home. He probably went to another zealous Jew. And that guy, too, is having the chance to hear what's happened to Saul on this road. And Ananias shows up, and he's going to pray for him. But beforehand, God makes this interesting statement, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So God has a high calling on this man. He is a chosen instrument of mine. You've got to be kidding. Saul, the one who hates the church. Yep, that guy, right guy. He is a chosen instrument of mine. He was going to bear my name before kings and governors. But then verse 16, the other side of the coin. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
a high calling that includes not only great opportunity, but great cost. And it is always that way. That where there is great, call, great calling and great opportunity, there is always great cost. And when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and that litany of things that Paul suffered, you have to go, yeah, it's nice. He went and was able to talk to kings and governors and all. But who would sign up for the kind of suffering that this man went through? It's incredible. And Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and he was baptized, and he took food and he was strengthened. Now, I want you to just think with me a little bit about um, when Saul got saved. Was it when he saw the light? Was it during the three days that he went without eating and drinking? Or was it when Ananias appeared and prayed for him? We don't know. Paul's going to say in in Galatians chapter 1, he says, the gospel I preached to you, I heard directly from Jesus and not from men. And so some people take that and say, well, that's when Jesus spoke to him there on the road to Damascus. Well, if it is, Jesus said more than what's recorded here in Acts 9 or in Acts 22 or in Acts 26. Because in all three places, all Paul says is, the Lord said to me, why are you persecuting me? That's not the gospel. Was it when he spent the three days without eating or drinking? We don't know. If it was, then... Why did Ananias come and say, let me pray for you so that you can receive the Holy Spirit? And in fact, if you go over to Acts 22, it seems to be the best I can see is maybe that's when he got saved, but it's not even absolutely clear. So in Acts 22, verse 16, this is the closest, I think, that would indicate that he wasn't saved when Jesus first spoke to him. He wasn't saved during the three days, but he was saved when Ananias came, and I can't say for sure. But Acts 22, 16... And now, this is Ananias speaking, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. So this is where he says, call upon the name of Jesus. Apparently, he had not yet done that. And have your sins washed away. So just going from from the evidence that we have, I would say that he was not saved when he was struck off that donkey. He was not saved during the three days But he was saved when Ananias showed up and said, you need to call upon the name of Jesus. Because apparently he had not up to that point. So what do you do with Paul saying, I did not hear the gospel from men. I did not receive this gospel from men. But I received it from the Lord Jesus. Well, I don't think Paul is making reference to what we think of as the gospel. And this is what I hope I'm not going to come across as a heretic, so follow me closely here. Gospel means good news, okay? And there is lots of good news in the Scripture. And in Galatians, when Paul is talking about the gospel, he's not talking about 
he's not only talking about how a person is saved. He talks about more than that. Because in Galatians, he's also saying that gospel is not just how you are saved, but it is how you live the Christian life. That is also the gospel. And he's going to say in Galatians, I'm amazed that you who are already saved are so quickly deserting Jesus for another gospel. You see? And so the gospel is not just how do you go from light, from darkness to light, from death to life. It's not just how you have your sins forgiven, but the gospel is now that your sins are forgiven and you have the life of Jesus, how do you live the life that you have? By faith in Christ, Galatians 2.20, where he says, and I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the gospel Paul was preaching. And he didn't get that from men. Did this man who was persecuting the church know that the Christians believed Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the dead. Did Paul know what the Christians believed? I'd say, this is not a dumb man. This is a man who knew who he was persecuting. He knew what they preached. He was there and heard Stephen preach. He is not ignorant about who his enemies are. He knows they believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the dead. He knows that these people believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and Paul regarded that as blasphemy. He is not ignorant on what we call the gospel. But Paul is saying, God showed me that the gospel is much more than simply how you get your sins paid for. That's a good thing. That is great news. But if that's all you have, then you know nothing when it comes to living this Christian life. I want you to look at something else in Galatians. And I, again, it's just, it, it, it hit me afresh as I was looking at it in preparation for this message. Galatians chapter 1. Again, it, it's looking at verse 6 that I've already quoted. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And then he says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation from Jesus Christ. But here's my point. Paul would have known what we typically call the gospel before he began preaching and persecuting the Christians. So what is he saying when I never got the gospel from men. Now, look over to verse 16. He was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And he goes on. So what is he saying here? It seems to me he's saying that the gospel that I received... It's not just that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He died for our sins and rose again from the dead that we might have our sins forgiven and might receive eternal life. <laughs> Amen, hallelujah. But He also revealed His Son in me. And as He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, this is the mystery. Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. And see, mystery is something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. And Paul says, this is what God has called me to preach. Not just how a person can get saved, his sins forgiven, and eternal life in him. But that Christ, when he places his faith in Christ, Christ indwells him. This is the mystery. Christ in you. The hope of glory. This is the means for living out this life that God miraculously has given to each one of us. That I now live by faith in him who gave himself for me and who lives in me. This is the gospel. And Paul's saying to us, I didn't get this in the Old Testament. It's consistent with, it's not contradictory, but I got this straight from God. That the very reason that Jesus came and died and rose again from the dead was so that he might indwell me and you. And that he himself becomes the means, the dynamic for this life. And there's no way to live it apart from him. He was pleased to reveal his son in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in him, in the son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Going back to Acts chapter 9. So I think Paul was saved when he called upon the Lord Jesus for salvation. And it was Ananias who delivered that message to him. You must call upon the Lord Jesus. And let me just stop, because I, you know, I always assume I'm preaching to the choir here, okay? I, I, and, it's, and sometimes it's an assumption that's a wrong assumption, I understand. But what I mean by that is I just assume that everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about and that everybody here has called upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. But I don't want to just quickly bypass that. Because I'm telling you, that is the greatest miracle. And if you have never called upon Jesus for salvation, then you are living a life alienated from God. You do not have eternal life. You are living life that can be totally explained by you. And there is nothing supernatural about your life. You're just a human being living without God. You may love God. You may have a zeal for God. You may be passionate to know Him. You may be memorizing your Bible. But if you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus by calling upon him for salvation, you do not have life. I'll never forget when a friend of mine told me that he did not become a Christian, with a, a man with a personal relationship with Jesus because he cried out upon Jesus for salvation until he was pastoring a church. He'd gone all the way through seminary, had his Master's of Divinity degree, and was pastoring a church, I think in Kansas, and was a part of the pastoral alliance that got together for lunch once a month in the, in the town that he was in. And one of those pastors there who knew Christ recognized that my friend didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he just pulled him aside one day, took him out for lunch, just the two of them, and said, can you tell me about your relationship with Jesus? My friend had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, I didn't think you had any idea. And he says, let me tell you what it means to be saved. To have a personal relationship with God. This is what we've been created for. 
This is why we have life, so that we might have union with God. And it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing you need to do. It is a free gift. You simply need to say, God, thank you. Jesus, save me. Jesus, I want you to live in me and to give me your very life, eternal life, washing away my sins and saving me for yourself. It is something any child can do. It's not complicated, but it is humbling because you have to acknowledge that you do not have what it takes to stand before a righteous God and be accepted. So Paul called upon the name of the Lord, as we all must, and he was saved. I keep calling him Paul, but that's his saved name. And this man was so dramatically altered that God said, let's just give him a new name and just forget that old name. But we've all been made new creatures, and the old has passed away. So we're told here... When I, want, I want to get to what I think is the climax of this whole thing. Not his salvation, yes, that's the climax, but there's, a, there's another climactic point in this story. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. You know that blew their minds, because they know in advance Paul's coming to the synagogues, and he is going to be rounding up all the Christians, and he comes and he starts preaching Jesus. They thought, is this a joke? <laughs> I mean, it just, how do you deal with that? And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Paul, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. The tables have turned. But his disciples, already he has disciples. I mean, he hadn't been a Christian, but just a short time. He already has. They took him by the night, and they let him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a large basket. Now, sometime in here, either, either before this event or after this event, it's, still, it's not clear to us, Paul's going to spend three years in Arabia, and that's where he really gets discipled by Jesus. And I believe that Jesus appears to him again, because one of the qualifications for being a, 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 an apostle is you have to have seen Jesus. Well, he didn't see him when he was on the, on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by him. He never saw him, Right? And so there had to have been another occasion when he saw Jesus. And I think it was during that three years that he spent in Arabia. But here's the deal. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul once again makes reference to his salvation, he's in a very difficult position. They are, they are, they're saying because of their prosperity theology, essentially, they didn't call it that back then, but that's what it was, Many people are saying Paul is not a legitimate apostle because he has suffered so much. And if he were what he claims to be, then he wouldn't be suffering like he is. 
So he was having to contend with this prosperity theology that says that if you're walking in the will of God, everything's going to go well for you, which is garbage. And so Paul tells them, he says, well, I won't deny it. I've had a lot of bad things happen to me. And he lists all the bad things that have happened. But then he says, I haven't told you everything. Let me tell you the worst thing that ever happened to me. Whoa, what's that going to be? I mean, he's been beaten times without number. He's been shipwrecked, he said, three different times, I think it was. And he's been days and nights without food, not without, it, without adequate clothing, without adequate um, food. And you go, what more could have happened to this man? And, it, and you, just, you just feel the climax building. And he says, if I have to tell you about the, about the humiliating things that have happened to me, the things that have, been, that have impressed upon me my weakness more than anything else, he goes, I'll do it. He goes, I was let down at night in a basket through a hole in the wall while I was in Damascus. And you go, what's so bad about that? It was the most humiliating experience of Paul's entire life. Nothing humbled him more than that night. Because see, this is the guy who is the up-and-coming scholar. This is the guy, when he talked, everybody shut up and listened. And now he's preaching Jesus. And not only is he getting persecuted, but he has to hide. And not just hide in any way when he left that city, but historians tell us that those holes in the wall and those baskets were were basically toilets. That's how you got rid of human excrement. You put it in a basket and you lowered it to the ground and you dumped it and then you pulled the basket back up again. And Paul says, if I've got to talk to you about all the bad things that have happened in my life, let me tell you about the night I was treated like human excrement. And he's a brand new Christian. Never forgot it. Why would God do that? Because the gospel of how we are saved. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We are miserable, godless wretches who can only receive from the gracious hand of God. That gospel for how we are saved is not changed in how we live. And now this new Christian You do not live this by your intellect. You do not live this life by your passion and your zeal. You live this life in the same way that you receive Jesus Christ. With an open hand as a person who has nothing to offer, can only receive, and says, Jesus save me. And that is the same way we will live this life. And God has to impress upon this man who was once so proud, but he has the same intellect he had before. He has the same passion, the same zeal he had before. And it's going to be extremely tempting for him to think, I live in Christ the same way I lived before I became a Christian, by my strength. And he'd be wrong. I have a dear friend that when he was in high school, he was a standout athlete, most popular kid in the school, quarterback for the football team, and he was a hellraiser. And when he came to faith in Christ, nobody could believe it. And man, when he, and he bowed his head and he received Jesus, and it was absolutely genuine. And the man who led him to Christ, he looked at him and says, Now what? What do I do now? And he wisely said to him, You do nothing. 
You were not saved so that you could do. You've just entered into a relationship with God Almighty. He does not need you. Spend some time reading your Bible and getting to know the one who saved you. And that friend of mine told me this is the best advice he could have ever received. Because if that guy had given him anything to do, he would have thought that you lived the Christian life by your own level of commitment. That's what he'd been doing before he was saved, and that's what he thought he had to do to live the Christian life, rather than living from Christ who lives in you. So I think this was the worst night of Paul's life and the worst thing that he'd ever been through, but it was the best thing. Because he will never forget for the rest of his life. The gospel is Jesus who saved you when you had nothing you could do to save yourself. Is the Jesus who lives in you to live the life that you could never live without him. It's his life. And we can do nothing apart from him. What a conversion. No less miraculous than any one of ours. A little more sensational, but no less miraculous. And I would leave you again with this. I believe this whole story, this whole conversion experience is put here, ending with the basket being let down through the hole in the wall, because it's all about the gospel. The way we are saved is the way that we live, by simple faith. In Jesus Christ. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you so much for recording these things for us. We would have never known them. It blesses and encourages our heart, God, to see what you were able to do in a man's life. Thank you, God, for what you've done in each of ours who have called upon Jesus for salvation. Jesus saved us. We didn't do anything. We just said, Jesus saved me. We recognize by your grace our sin our separation from you. We saw how far we fall short of the glory of God, that there's no good thing in us apart from you. And all we can do as helpless babes is just raise our hands to you and say, Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Save me. And you have. Giving us yourself, giving us eternal life, your very life. And we thank you, God, for all that you've done for us in Jesus. And I thank you, God, that the gospel by which you have saved us is also the gospel by which we live. Faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that again in these, in these crazy days that we're living in, that we would be bold proclaimers of Jesus, not living in fear, not cowering, God, but living a life, Lord, of, of boldness and confidence, not being imprudent, unwise, but God, that it would be Jesus who characterizes our lives and confidence in him. And I do pray, God, that we would increasingly make the most of each opportunity that you've given us to preach Jesus and to let people know, to hear many who have never heard before, that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins. And through faith in him, and only faith in him, we can receive eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.